In July of 2021, the United States began evacuating Afghans with Special Immigrant Visa Status, or SIV. After the Taliban occupation of Kabul, the proverbial floodgates opened, and throughout August, the U.S. evacuated approximately 70,000 people on military air. Joining us today is a panel of three judge advocates who were intimately involved in both the tactical and operational execution of what came to be known as OAW, or Operation Allies Welcome. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, I'd like to introduce our three judge advocates that work directly in support of Operation Allies Welcome. Our co-host today for today is Lieutenant Commander Emily Militello, a U.S. Coast Guard judge advocate currently working at the Center for Law and Military Operation at the Army's JAG School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Captain Eric Reimer and Captain Maurizio Lewis Streit served as action officers for Task Force Eagle, a group devoted to the housing of Afghani special immigrants in Fort Lee, Virginia. Captain Reimer focused primarily on contract and fiscal law, while Captain Lewis Streit handled other operational challenges, including ethics and authorities concerns. So, Lieutenant Commander Militello, ma'am, first I'll, I'll turn it to you. If you could just introduce yourself and uh, give a little bit of background on, on, on your role here and both in uh, OAW. All right. Uh, well, thanks so much, Justin. Um, it's great to be here. Um, I am, uh, again, Lieutenant Commander Emily Militello. Um, I'm currently assigned to CLAMO, which is the Army Center for Law and Military Operations. Um, I'm a Coast Guard judge advocate, um, and I recently completed, just last year, completed the Army's LLM program here. So I've been around the Army now for about a year and a half, but I did get the opportunity uh, for basically the month of October um, to go to uh, D.C. to work out of DHS headquarters in the Unified Coordination Group, so essentially the White House Task Force at DHS coordinating um, Operation Allies Welcome across uh, the whole of government. So um, essentially we had reps from every agency involved in this operation uh, in one working group essentially to try to coordinate those efforts. And I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but I was the, the, the lawyer for that group for about a month. Thank you, ma'am, and welcome. Appreciate you being on the show this morning. Uh, Eric, I'll turn it to you. If you could just introduce yourself, uh, as well as for both yourself and Maurizio, just how long you've been in the JAG Corps and, and, and other assignments, previous assignments, if any, because I think that's very important. The uh, thrown into the to the fire, if you will, of the, uh, the JAG Corps, especially the Army's JAG Corps. Thank you so much, Justin. My name is Eric Reimer. I am the contract and fiscal law attorney for the Combined Armed Support Command and Fort Lee Garrison at Fort Lee, Virginia. I have been at Fort Lee since early 2019. It's my first assignment in the JAG Corps after OBC. I've been supporting the operation at Fort Lee since mid-July, and uh, it certainly has felt much, much longer because uh, it was such a, it's been such an incredible few months, um, but it's been a great honor um, and a great learning and impactful experience to be a part of it. Yeah, good morning again. Uh, thank you again for inviting us here. Uh, Justin, thank you so much. Um, I'm Maurizio Lewis-Strike, Captain Lewis-Strike. I've been a part of the JAG Corps uh, only for about a year and a half now. Like uh, Fort Lee, Virginia is my uh, first duty station. Um, I'm working with uh, 
Captain Reimer at the OSJ. I'm an administrative law attorney there. Uh, and yeah, I, I was thrown onto the mission. I was part of the mission for about two months, starting in early September, um, supporting uh, and helping our teammates um, with all the administrative uh, and ethical uh, questions that, that came up throughout the operation. It was an extreme honor to be a part of it uh, and a great, great uh, learning opportunity. Eric and Maurizio, thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. So, so ma'am, I'm going to turn to you. And, and just ask you about um, when you first find out that you're going to be uh, a part of this unified coordination group for, for Operation Allies Welcome, and, and maybe if you could take the listeners through a summary of what was OAW, what was Operation Allies Welcome? All right, I'll try to do this fairly succinctly, um, but uh, as many of you, I assume, were tracking in the media and whatnot, uh, this operation began as Operation Allies Refuge, um, and that was a State Department-led operation that started in mid-July, or was announced formally um, by the White House in mid-July, uh, to evacuate Afghans who had assisted the U.S. in their war efforts over the last 20 years. Um, and this was primarily directed at the folks you mentioned earlier who are SIV holders or applicants um, that were already going through that process. Uh, then, after the fall of Kabul, um, the floodgates essentially opened, and the number of Afghans evacuated um, exceeded, I think, what anybody expected or planned for. And while maybe those numbers would have been the same over years and years and years, um, it all happened pretty quickly and likely will continue to happen over the next couple of years. But, um, but in the grand scheme of things, we ended up evacuating about, I think the number is about 70,000 uh, folks via Mill Air from Afghanistan who are destined for the United States, um, many of whom were in kind of holding patterns overseas, undergoing certain types of screening, both medical and security screening. Uh, anyway, August 29th, DHS was designated the lead federal agency for what was then termed Operation Allies Welcome. And that kind of represented a shift from uh, those kind of emergent evacuation operations to essentially resettlement operations here in the U.S. So DHS, while designated the lead federal agency, um, you'll see in the designation that they're actually designated the lead federal agency for coordination. Um, so they don't have authority necessarily to, you know, pay for or make a lot of this stuff happen, but they are in a great place to coordinate all the agency's efforts who do. So essentially, this was a cobbling together of different agencies' authorities throughout the federal government to move and resettle about 70,000 Afghans in the U.S. The vast majority were folks who didn't have status and were paroled, and that's a CBP or USCIS, uh, Customs and Immigration Service term, uh, paroled into the United States. So essentially, they are legally in the U.S., but they do not have permanent immigration status. Um, but this allows them to come into the U.S., uh, work, be here legally, be entitled to certain benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So um, DOD obviously has been playing, although they're not the lead agency, they do have the people, the money, the bases to make all this happen. Um, so they have been by far like the backbone of this operation. So super thankful to have you guys here to talk about what that's been like on the ground level. Thanks, ma'am. Um, before we get into any of the specific legal issues, uh, one of the overarching uh, themes is just the status uh, of an individual 
migrant. Um, and so we keep mentioning the term SIV or special immigrant visa. Can you help, ma'am, maybe just help us understand that status as opposed to, uh, I know you already mentioned parolee, but that status as opposed to uh, someone like a refugee and, and how does that differ? What are the differences? Are there differences? Can you help us understand that first? And then maybe um, we can talk through some of the legal issues that were encountered on the ground at Fort Lee. Sure. Um, so I am by no means an expert in immigration law, but you'll notice I mentioned earlier that the name of the operation changed from Operation Allies Refuge to Allies Welcome. And while I cannot 100% confirm this, the idea was that uh, like these folks coming were not technically refugees. So the Immigration and Nationality Act provides certain benefits to folks who come through the refugee system, and that's a UN system, right? So um, so the UN, um, I forget the name of the specific department within the UN, uh, but they manage uh, refugees worldwide and um, help resettle them in places all over the world, right? So these folks were not um, automatically entitled to those benefits under the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, because they had not been essentially deemed refugees. Um, so, uh, because of that, the way that we were able to bring them into the U.S., um, there's this um, process called humanitarian parole. So, essentially, folks who are, uh, they need to get out of wherever they are for whatever reason. We can parole them into the United States. And I know a lot of people associate parole with some sort of, like, criminal status, and I wish they would pick a new name for it because, you know, you see the term parolee, like we've got thousands of parolees here, and it makes people, um, I think, gives people a different impression. But but they are, uh, being paroled into the U.S. is a, a non-status, right? So it's not an immigration status in and of itself, but it does allow folks to be legally in the U.S. while they apply for or seek a more permanent immigration status. Um, so the vast majority of individuals who were brought into the U.S. who had evacuated Afghanistan were paroled in. We've heard, we've heard you, ma'am, talk a little bit about, I guess, the operational or the strategic view uh, from, from, from D.C. You guys were, were on the ground at a more tactical uh, level, uh, and you guys were talking, uh, really working at, at one of the primary uh, resettlement sites at Fort Lee, Virginia. And so, Eric, um, as you first kind of got that call or that email from your boss, however it worked, you know, what was going through your head and, and, and how did those, those first few days or weeks of this operation unfold from your tactical perspective? For those uh, who are unaware, Fort Lee is primarily a logistics support and training base. Usually our day-to-day -day is um, very, uh, very predictable. Um, we have a very clear mission in uh, support, supply, and training. And therefore, actually, in many ways, we're very well designed for, for this mission in uh, supporting the SIV uh, persons on Fort Lee. Um, I'd say the, the operation definitely began very suddenly. Um, it was unclear at the start exactly how extensive the operation might be. But nonetheless, we were uh, definitely was a big change from our day to day that we were used to uh, and suddenly you know, being part of this historic operation in uh, shifting a lot of our support and supply from training purposes and uh, our general purposes within the Army at the Combined Armed Support Command to supporting this operation. Uh, for those unaware, uh, Fort Lee was actually the first base announced and designated by the president uh, to receive a special immigrant visa applicants from Afghanistan. 
And so we knew that for us, this was, uh, it was new territory um, and definitely that a lot of eyes across the nation were watching. And definitely as the operation developed into August, as the situation in Afghanistan morphed, undoubtedly uh, we also saw that at Fort Lee too. My introduction was very much so different from uh, Eric's. Uh, I came along a little later. Uh, uh, Eric and, and our leadership were fundamental um, at Fort Lee. Like you, like you said, we were the first. Um, I came on board around early September um, as a representative of our office, going to all the meetings. And, and, and essentially, my job became as administrative law attorney, uh, basically going to those meetings and issue spotting. It became an issue spotting exercise every single day because, you know, everything was moving so quickly, like Captain Rummer was saying, uh, when when you have a bunch of people coming into the installation, a steady flow, and you're having to house food, give, uh, provide food and, and, you know, a place to stay. So, ma'am, I know so you are our legal, you were a legal advisor to OAW, but today you also get to be a Battlefield Next co-host, which is uh, pretty amazing. And so, so at this point, I kind of want to transition to a discussion of more of the legal issues. Sure. Wow. I never thought I'd be a podcast co-host. So <laughs> thank you so much. Um, so one thing that I think is interesting, right, is, um, again, I, I, we were talking a little before this, like DOD is obviously the only agency that could handle something like this, right? So there were eight installations that were um, housing uh, Afghan evacuees or parolees. Uh, Fort Lee had probably the fewest number, but you guys also did it first. So you were laying the groundwork and you were kind of, you know, people would come to you for questions about how did you handle, uh, like Justin was saying, law enforcement and security, data collection, all these things that you probably hadn't had much training on, right? Um, so I know you probably had a very short block in OBC about the Posse Comitatus Act. Um, and uh, the big takeaway from that that everybody remembers is that DOD doesn't do law enforcement, right? Um, but you're setting up these essentially small towns on board DOD installations. And like any small town, um, you're going to have a requirement to provide basic security and police forces. Um, that seems like it kind of conflicts uh, with, you know, what we've learned that DOD doesn't do law enforcement. Uh, and I know that there there was not any particular need for, you know, this, these weren't like areas of rampant criminality or anything, but just providing those basic police services on the ground. How did you guys kind of think through that? Was that an issue that came to your attention? And what were the legal considerations? But in terms of the Law enforcement side, definitely that was a major legal question early on. Key information that we were looking at was the Army definition of exactly the status of the SIV applicants we would be receiving, the role our interagency and intraagency partners would be looking at. And in the end, the conclusion we came to was that DOD had the authority only to apprehend said SIV applicants on our installation, but did not have the power to detain, as uh, that would be in many ways involving potentially law enforcement functions. And so essentially, our the eventual equilibrium we came to was to treat the SIV applicants on our base as we would any other civilian on a federal installation. And so we coordinated with local law enforcement for uh, if they... 
uh, were to be formally detained or um, however DOD itself did not engage in any law enforcement action. Because I do think it's really interesting that obviously you guys are used to, you know, there's plenty of civilians who live on DOD installations, right? And if someone shoplifts from the exchange, like you have a way to deal with that. But at the same time, the numbers here made that somewhat untenable. You couldn't just rely on the folks that you had on the ground. Uh, And while, of course, the DOD and an installation commander is going to have that ultimate authority for good order and discipline and security on board his or her installation, um, we don't want the military policing large civilian communities, right? It's kind of just a fundamental like underlying principle of like why we separate military forces from police forces. So yeah, I think the tension that that created um, and those overlapping authorities uh, is it was a challenge and it's been a challenge throughout this operation. Um, So that's really cool that you guys uh, were able to work that out on the ground. And for Lee, I feel like, you know, everything went, uh, seemed like it was going very smoothly from the headquarters level. So way to go. Um, Shifting to a kind of a happier topic, um, <laughs> I know once uh, this word kind of got out about this operation, tons of NGOs kind of banded together and local communities were donating things in droves, right? And another block from OBC, I'm assuming you guys talked about gift acceptance and ethics stuff. Um, while certainly these donations were not intended for the DOD, right? They're intended for uh, the Afghans. They're coming to you guys. So was that an issue? And could you talk to that a little bit? It definitely was. And especially once the SIV applicants were boots on the ground at Fort Lee and word spread, many people in the communities, uh, in, in the military community as well, wanted to provide support in every possible kind of way. What uh, we eventually came to was that the Joint Ethics Regulation, which is the guiding ethics regulation for the entire DOD, does contemplate a situation like this. And uh, we were able to develop a framework whereby under JER Section 3211, uh, the DOD is allowed to provide what's called limited logistical support to certain non-federal entity to include non-profits operations. And also figuring out the housing of donations, like that would became an issue where we could store them, how we can transport them. And my job was just to kind of keep my ears on the ground because in the frenzy that that the local community uh, kind of, you know, because that's a, it's a, it was a great thing, right? They wanted to help. It was essential for us to work with like public affairs and stuff to, to clarify, hey, while this operation is going on in Fort Lee, we're not soliciting donations. We're not asking for them. It's being led through our NGO partners. It's being led through those other agencies, and we're providing limited logistical support. Sometimes the donations were so extensive uh, from the from the uh, military and surrounding communities that they actually made it so some of our contract and fiscal requirements that were uh, prepared for and uh, contemplated were actually not needed at times because the donations filled so much of a a need that uh, it reduced the amount of spending at times. And I want to just before I just want to say take the time now to say thank you to like just just our, our family, the United States, just just for the support. I feel like our country just really banded together as as as, as a team and as a family, um, and as it was evident in in the donations operations. So I like to 
say like from the headquarters perspective, this was not only a whole of government operation. This was really a whole of community operation, too, because NGO partners were critical or have been critical uh, in making this happen. And local communities have been so supportive in both resettlement efforts and in supporting folks living on the installations. And while DOD can solve every problem, it seems like, and there's some famous quote, I don't know what it's from, but somebody said, like, you know, it seems like the only way for the government to get stuff done is to call it a national security issue and give it to the military. <laughs> but um, not that this was a national security mission. This was definitely a civil support operation. But um, but yeah, those those hurdles that are in place because you guys are not inherently set up to do this sort of operation. Um, it was interesting to see how, how those were kind of sorted out at the field level uh, and ideally by other agencies, right? Because everybody has equities in, in this sort of operation. And I think that was what that was particularly one amazing thing about the the operation from start to finish was that there were so many um, new legal questions, uh, new operational questions that involved legal aspects. But nonetheless, uh, uh, we were able to coordinate quickly, not only across our installation, across Task Force Eagle, across uh, with our intra-agency and inter-agency partners, which uh, were were numerous and each had a very key role in the process. And so even though at the beginning, DOS was our primary inter-agency partner, um, as mentioned, other inter-agency partners uh, were involved too, especially as the operation developed. So uh, DHS, the FBI, et cetera, intra-agency as well, uh, NORTHCOM, the Northern Command, uh, U.S. Army North, which had uh, authority in the Army for managing its operation. So I don't know if you guys had much interaction with this aspect of the operation, but I was hoping to talk a little bit about resettlement. Um, so I know in the past, I think during the last presidential administration, there was a um, kind of cutback on the number of resettlement agencies that contract with the State Department to conduct these sorts of missions. Obviously, when that, uh, I think we went from and don't hold me to these numbers, but I think we went from having 20 resettlement agencies here in the U.S. with State Department contracts to having only nine. Obviously, that happened at a time when we did not anticipate resettling 70,000 Afghans in the U.S. Um, so the State Department and resettlement agencies have been kind of stretched thin in getting these folks to their more permanent homes. Um, and as you guys know, and I think the listeners all know, um, a lot of people just ran to the airport with a bag, hopefully a bag. Right, so people showed up here with essentially nothing. Um, so the, those resettlement operations are, you know, it's a big lift for every individual family. And I'm wondering, is that something that you guys had any interaction with on the field level, or is that something that you could talk about at all? I had a very brief interaction. I mean, very brief, and that that was just uh, sitting in the meetings there uh, with the Department of State and um, listening to them uh, give the update to our chief of staff and, and to our commanding general about the number of uh, assurances for onward movement. Gotcha. And just by assurances, you mean um, like assured housing or exactly. a, an ideal? Okay, gotcha. Exactly. For the for our Afghan personnel, actually having some place for them to go and then, you know, in terms of processing, getting them uh, a process for onward movement. Got it. Okay. And, and kind of on the along the lines of you know, resettling, starting a new life in the U.S. Um, one thing that I think a lot of us take for granted is, you know, you're a baby, you get all these vaccines and you go to school, right? And so a lot of the Afghan population, basically all um, who were coming here, didn't have those kind of fundamental MMR 
chicken pox or varicella and COVID vaccines. So there was a big push, ideally while these folks were still overseas, to get all those required vaccines. And all those required vaccines were also conditions of the humanitarian parole. So folks who were paroled into the U.S. were required to to complete those vaccines to meet conditions of parole to then apply for legal permanent resident status. Did you guys, were you, I mean, getting all of these people vaccinated on a DOD installation seems like a heavy lift. It also seems like probably not a DOD mission, although I'm sure you all supported it on the ground. Did you have any interaction or could you talk to at all um, what the kind of public health aspect of that was like and how DOD supported that, that public health effort? I mean, it definitely was from the very start a big topic, definitely from uh, a COVID uh, standpoint as well as a general health standpoint. A lot of that was uh, clarified in our MOU with state on like uh, the kind of framework that would be set up. And so at Fort Lee, for example, we do not have a full hospital. We have a, a clinic which provides pharmacy and various uh, various medical services. However, for the SIV applicants, there was a medical services uh, tent area set up that had quite extensive medical treatment services, vaccination services. Um, we also coordinate a lot with uh, local health providers, so the local hospitals in the region. And so when there was a more extensive medical need, a more complex medical need, there could be transportation and utilization of said local medical services. I just can't say enough about just kind of the effort, right? <laughs> I was just amazed. Our task force surgeon for the for um, task force Eagle was amazing. Another major shout out was our our, our Air Force teammates, uh, the EMED for Air Force. They were primarily in charge a lot of the times with working um, closely, I believe, with contracted medical as well, right? To do a lot of vaccinations to be able to continue in the process when we're talking about uh, citizenship. So they were the ones that were making sure everybody was coming in and pushing that effort really to get everyone vaccinated. So major shout outs to them and watching them do that along with the task force surgeon and coordinating that effort was a huge part of the task force. Like a huge part and of my report. I think an early success of the operation was that they had essentially a hundred percent vaccination rate vaccination rates for all vaccines among the entire Afghan population arriving here. Um, so you know while we're embroiled in kind of vaccine debate at the uh, you know national level, this kind of went off without a hitch, right? They had uh, pretty much a hundred percent compliance right out of the gate. Again, I'm sure neither of you anticipated when you got to Fort Lee that you would be involved in this type of operation and that it would be essentially a 24-7 operation. Like I know you guys have been working around the clock um, to support these folks uh, for the last few months. Again, we have people who essentially fled to an airport, landed in the U.S. with nothing and are trying to restart their lives. Obviously, there are going to be some cultural shocks, um, just like getting re- or getting acquainted with a different system of government, like different types of society, obviously being, you know, just in a totally new atmosphere and in this state of limbo, having undergone what was undoubtedly a very stressful uh, experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about like any, I know there was an issue early on with like access to certain types of food and other things just to make folks comfortable in, in their new home. Um, so could you guys talk about how that manifested at your level? Definitely. I mean, even though the uh, operation tried to foresee all the kinds of 
topics and needs that might uh, come about once the SIV applicants were on the ground at Fort Lee. Nonetheless, there, still, there were still many things we could not foresee. Um, for example, one major immediate need upon the first SIVs uh, arriving at Fort Lee was we realized we did not have a easy means for the SIVs to acquire cigarettes, which uh, many SIVs, it was very essential to their, their well-being. And so we had to figure out a way to to both authorize and then allow uh, APHES to provide a mechanism to, to sell such cigarettes. Many uh, saw firsthand all of America's product in full display. Oh, and just to be clear, we're not saying that cigarettes are essential for anyone's health. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're yes, just saying yes. that uh, like culturally, tobacco use, mm. it's mm. different in Afghanistan, right? And and all of a sudden, they couldn't buy cigarettes here. So that was something that you had to work out. At the end of the day, you know, they're, we were able to provide and had the illegal authority to do so. It's just stuff you didn't anticipate. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. I uh, wanted to say, you you'd kind of touched on the the role of a culture advisor. We had it on the ground, a gender advisor and a cultural advisor. Um, and th- that gender advisor was essential for our, our operation because, you know, as we had the liaisons that, that were on really boots on the ground with the different cohorts because they broke them up into cohorts, our guests into cohorts to oversee. Like, so there was daily interaction. And so having that gender advisor kind of given up, giving us those cultural tips and perspectives in, in, in terms of making them comfortable our guests comfortable in our installation was was huge, right? In terms of knowing how to interact, what to say, what kind of events would be great for them to have. Um, and again, another big part of my job in terms of the issue spotting was, again, a lot of those quality of life ideas that came about to try to make the stay a, you know, a little better, right? So I, I, I could share a story in that there was something that was donated for quality of life, right? So he's laughing because uh, it became... You know, those those quality of life things that you don't think about that could potentially be a legal issue. And, for example, mm-hmm. there was do- a donated pl- a swing set, right, to be for, for the um, our guests and for, for the kids on the installation, um, which is basically a, a large part of our guests or, or a lot of children. Um, and so from outside looking in, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal, right, a, a swing set being put up. But then again, like Captain Reimer said, our guests stayed at the IHG, and that's technically not for you know it's that's private uh, a private entity property so we're talking about where we're going to put up the swing set are we able to put it there what's the contract and there was a lot of contract work behind to see if we can even put it up on that installation then see on, on that on that property then also seeing who's going to construct the swing set in terms of liability who's the one putting it up and who's going to assume kind of that risk right man how big was this swing set <laughs> 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 I mean that that was a question we had too throughout the, that process, <laughs> that and that uh, you know we, we didn't know if it was gonna be a you know a massive complex or it's just gonna be you know uh, a little tube or something. But actually, that uh, playground issue also brought up um, a complex legal angle that we had that was definitely new for a lot of people in our office. So in short, it allowed us, even though it allows us to understand how the somewhat complex real estate system works for how privately operated entities 
may utilize federal property. And so because the hotel facility is a uh, operated by a private company, not by the federal government, but the land is still owned by the federal government. And so in the early stages of the operation and for this playground issue, we had to work with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which manages the real estate license um, for the private uh, hotel facility. And it allowed us to explore the complexities of real estate law and what it means to be changing real estate versus a a temporary construct. Well, thank you guys. I mean, there's so much. I know we talked for like an hour before we started recording (laughs) about some of the interagency issues and all the funding issues and the lack of appropriations to support this operation, which again, in theory, are forthcoming. Um, and But we just don't have time to talk about all of it. Um, so with that, again, like you guys are like fairly junior judge advocates doing a mission that nobody trained you for, right? This was everybody just doing their best uh, with the knowledge and experience they had and trying to plug gaps and cobble together authorities um, and capabilities where they can to make this happen. So could you guys, if you have any closing thoughts or any particular story that's going to stick with you or advice for others encountering these sorts of operations, I would just love to have kind of your closing thoughts. I think for me, definitely, and I know for the rest of our team as well, I think uh, communication was key. This was a a fast-moving operation with uh, a lot of new legal authorities, a lot of uh, uh, changing aspects, and being able to communicate quickly information within our team, our legal team, within uh, Task Force Eagle, and with within uh, within the the Army and DOD as well. Um, I can't thank enough, you know, all the, the support from other uh, JAG attorneys that I received in the, the early stages of the process back when Fort Lee was the, the prime uh, early installation. Um, I remember I had so many calls with personnel at other OSJAs, with personnel from Army Contracting Command. And so I think in a in something like this, even though it's was new, I think that Having the support of, of our our office, you know, uh, yeah, our SJA, our deputy SJA, and so many other attorneys in the JAG Corps really allowed basically this this big mind of of the JAG Corps to be uh, working to solve our our questions at Fortley, and I think that's what really helped us, you know, make this operation a success at the initial outset and and throughout. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely. I would say, you know, I think this was a huge learning experience for me uh, being a young judge advocate and learning that our roles, you know, allowed us to be versatile and and allowing us to have that team first mindset and also realizing that, yes, you're there as the lawyer, but you're so much more when you're in in those operations in terms of providing continuity, uh, because a lot of the times with our interagency partners, you know, they're boots on the ground only for about two or three weeks at a time. And for us to have the task force knowledge that we we did, because we were there at CASCOM and we were there on the ground every single day to kind of bridge those gaps and, and, and help, you know, facilitate the team's, uh, you know, working issues together. I think that was the biggest takeaway that I had was just understanding what my role can be and, 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 and utilizing just kind of whatever I could do to help out the mission, really. When the legal uh, issues popped up, yeah, sure, that, that's our wheelhouse, definitely. But then also, hey, hey, uh, judge, hey, can you 
can do you know about X, Y, and Z? And being like, yeah, I know who to contact on that because I was actually working with that person on a previous issue. And just doing those uh, those onesie, twosie, uh, those 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 interactions there to me were so special uh, because it was it was it was just a testament to our role of being flexible as, as judge advocates and being able to be relied upon for so much more than just legal advice, but just just advice and being a good advisor um, is something that I would take away uh, uh, forever, actually. So, yeah, and I think. Um... That's those are great. That's great feedback. And I totally agree. I think anybody who's been, um, you know, working as a judge advocate for any period of time knows that uh, legal work is a percentage of your work. But a lot of times you're the advisor, you're the problem solver. Um, And I know we try to limit that to the extent we can. But for a mission like this, it's just not possible. And that's particularly true when you're the institutional knowledge, right? Like you guys have been on the ground throughout the entirety of this mission. Um, And like you said, our interagency partners or leads even are rotating in on two to three week periods. So, So yeah, I think that's a great takeaway and a great uh, in my opinion, attitude to have, you know, like sometimes it's not your job and you just have to get it done uh, the best way that you can. And I know that another thing that helped a lot was Northcom kind of coordinating those JAG sync calls. So I hadn't seen that done in, in, in any other order sort of operation before, but where you've got these eight installations that are spread throughout the country, encountering slightly different issues, being able to get all the lawyers together on one call uh, to kind of share lessons learned in real time, um, I thought was uh, just, just invaluable. So shout out to Northcom too for for that coordinating effort. Um, very helpful. And with that, I'll um, hand it back to our our host here. It might not be for long, ma'am, after uh, after your co-hosting uh, production right there. So Eric Maurizio, ma'am, Lieutenant Commander Militello, thank you. Uh, thanks not only just for joining us today and, and sharing your insights, but but thanks for, for what I think uh, we all can say was a, an objectively uh, job well done. Interested in providing material to the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate? Reach out to us via Twitter or LinkedIn at JAGFCD, or visit our website at tjaglix.army.mil forward slash FCD. That's tjaglcs.army.mil forward slash FCD. Always on the lookout for the next guest, topic, or discussion. As always, the views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the United States Army, the United States Coast Guard, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, or any other agency of the United States government. Reference in this podcast to any specific commercial product, process, or service, or the use of any trade, firm, or corporation name is for the information and convenience of the public and does not constitute endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the Department of Defense. For the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate, I am Captain Justin Command. Thanks for joining us on Battlefield Next. <laughs>